It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name's Samir Rahim and I work at Prospect Magazine. And today I'm joined by the prize-winning author and The Guardian's chief culture writer, Charlotte Higgins, to talk about her new book, Greek Myths, A New Retelling. Prospect readers will know Charlotte for the column that she did for quite a long time for us uh, about Greek myths and their relation to the modern world. And her new book is called Greek Myths, A New Retelling, uh, which is beautifully done with illustrations by the Turner Prize winning artist, Chris Ophelia. Charlotte, thanks so much for joining us. It's a huge pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, So you're here to talk about your book about Greek myths, your book of Greek myths, in fact, uh, A New Retelling. Um, So the first question is, given... How many times have these stories have been told and retold? What new spin did you feel that you could bring to the party, as it were? Well, I have to say that, just to take it back a step maybe, it wasn't actually my idea to do this book. And I know that sounds a bit odd, and, and we should all be claiming that, you know, deep in our hearts for 20 years, uh, we had been, you know, we had the wonderful urge to write this particular book. That wasn't actually the case. Um, my editor at Jonathan Cape, B. Hemming, said to me outside a pub in 2017, why don't you do a book of Greek myths? And I remember this conversation as being me then saying I couldn't possibly. And she remembers it as the sort of light switching on and, you know, a kind of look of increasing comprehension dawning. I think the point is (laughs) that I never really thought that sort of having the temerity to write a compendium of Greek myths would be in my grasp because of Robert Graves, I suppose, and because of, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne and because of a hundred different fabulous retellings for children. Roger Lancelin Green is a particular favourite. But it's true that as she said those words, it occurred to me, of course, that you know, Robert Graves's retellings um, are as much a monument of Robert Graves's uh, prejudices, ideas and theories about myths as they are about Greek literature and Greek visual art. Um, so 
gradually I just thought to myself, why not? You know, these these stories exist uh, to be retold. You know, there's no original urtext. There's no canonical telling of these stories. Already in antiquity, what we're getting is retellings of retellings, reversionings, remakings. Um, each author or each visual artist with their different spin, their different purpose for telling the story, and they're pointing the camera uh, in different places to draw out different aspects of the story, to make different characters more important, to focus on particular incidents in a story. You know, it's a kind of ongoing creative project. So in a sense, you know, why shouldn't I? And why shouldn't somebody else do that tomorrow? And and they will. <laughs> so, I mean, I suppose if I had one thing that I was thinking about, uh, it was that um, a lot of these classic retellings were done by men with quite a masculinist focus. And that there's a world of stories in Greek literature that focus very strongly on female characters. And that was certainly there was a whole area to be explored there. I mean, it's true also, simultaneously, lots of female authors are novelizing ideas from the Greek myths, and that that's a slightly separate project in a sense. Um, my book is a compendium of Greek myths. It's in no sense a novel. It's not about, you know, uh, sort of um, drawing characters through time or... Um, um, you know, ascribing complex motivation to characters or anything like that. It, it's 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 my versioning of stories from Greek and Roman literature. Um, so, like many of us, Charlotte, you know, you must have first read these um, as a child, and it is often the case that children's versions, or um, sort of in a way, slightly sanitized versions of the of the of the stories that ones we come across in childhood. Do you remember the first book of Greek myths that you you read and what effect it had on you? Yes, strongly. Um, my brother gave me a really beautiful book of Greek myths when I was 11. Um, I know it was Christmas 1983, because that's, he, he wrote in the book. Um, and, um, it was, it's called Children of the Gods by Kenneth MacLeish. And it has beautiful illustrations by Elizabeth Frank. And actually, as it goes, that was less sanitised than many versions of Greek myths because on the opening pages it had quite an abrupt retelling of a castration, the castration, <laughs> the castration of um, of Uranus by uh, by Cronos, um, which asked to write a creation myth in religious education in RE. I rewrote that and it was covered in sort of question marks. Like, where has this child got this sort of really quite gruesome um, castration story from? Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was the, that was the first book. And I mean, part of the appeal actually was how beautiful it was. And Elizabeth, Dame Elizabeth Frank, the great artist, had illustrated it beautifully and it really set my imagination alive that book yeah yeah for me it was i think i can't find it now at all I don't have a copy but it was just a sort of quite a thin um uh illustrated book it was just called greek myths and legends but i remember it had a very angry serpent on the front cover which was defending the golden fleece from jason i suppose and we did a whole term of this at school we just fascinated by this book and i remember very distinctly one kid in class put his hand up and he said um but 
are these stories actually true? Um, and because at that time, you're sort of eight, nine years old and, you know, you're studying all this stuff in RE or if you're going to church or mosque, whatever, you've got all these like quite sort of, um, you know, mythical-esque stories. And for us, they just seemed like another set of them. So they did feel really incredibly true to us. It's so brilliant. And of course, this book is published as nonfiction, which I just find hilarious. I mean, you know, it, it can't be published as fiction because it's not a novel, clearly. But um, I do keep teasing my editor, like, you think, all oh, this is real? He's like, it's in your nonfiction list. What's going on? But of course, I mean, that does sort of point to um, something really fundamental about myths, doesn't it? Which is that they, on the one hand, when you say the word myth, uh, you might think immediately of something that is absolutely fundamentally true, on the one hand, you know, it has some kind of essential truth, or um, a myth might be something that we think of as absolutely untrue. It's 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 a word that pulls you in both directions, and I think that's that's at the heart of what a myth is. Uh, yeah, I remember that that Tolkien talked about the Christian story and said it's a myth that happens to be true, which is a way of sort of covering both uh, sides of it. Um, there's all these sources, aren't there? You know, when you, when, so when you grow up, you, you read more seriously as, as you have done, and, and, and you see all the different versions and you take them from Greek drama and Ovid and all these other places. And then as you were saying earlier, you realise that there's so many different ways of telling these, uh, t- ways of telling these stories, aren't there? Um, and um, particularly, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you've tried to refocus the attention away from, you know, the quite, as you said, quite male-centred, masculine hero. I mean, that's how I read them as child, as a child, basically, like swashbuckling uh, male heroes. But but you tried to turn that on its head slightly. Yeah, I mean, that that's all there in the... I suppose my argument would be, I mean, that that, that is all there for the taking in the original sources. It's the later retellers who have tended... Um, to version the stories as um, myths that uphold certain 19th and 20th century ideas of, of male virtue. So the idea of the hero going on the quest with his sword, I mean, that of course, that is in the Greek myths, but people like Heracles and Jason and Theseus, when we read them in the original sources, I say original, I mean antique sources, these people are far from people to be emulated. I mean, Heracles kills his wife and entire family, Theseus is a serial rapist. Jason is just a bit boring, really. He doesn't really do any of the mythical heavy lifting in his stories, uh, in the in the sense that because Medea, his uh, wife, is doing all the stuff. You know, she is the one who who uh, makes it possible to get the golden fleece. She is the one who makes it possible for them to escape, and so on and so forth. She she does all the sort of scary, clever stuff. So, um, so I mean, faithful is a funny word to use, but I think you know, in my way, I've been very, I've been very faithful. Um, but, but, yeah, you know, always that's going to be about making choices, about discarding some material and focusing on other bits of material. But you know, it's, I mean, if you take someone like the playwright Euripides. He has it all when it comes to taking a female point of view in relation to a story that's older than him. So, you know, he, like all the Greek dramatist, dramatists, minds Homer's epics. Homer's epics, you know, these old great stories that 
infiltrate and are pretty universal in, in later Greek culture and are there to be mined by later writers. So Euripides will take a, a sort of single moment or a single idea in one of the epics of Homer and turn it into a, a female-centered story often. So, um, you know, one of the episodes in the sort of epic cycle, the Trojan War, is um, that before the Greeks set off from Greece to go to Troy, they had a uh, poor weather conditions, let's say. There was no wind. And it became clear that the only way, the only way to get a favourable wind to take them to Troy was if Agamemnon, the Greek leader's daughter, Iphigenia, were to be sacrificed. So that, you know, that's part of the story and on it goes. But what Euripides does is takes that moment and think, thinks, what would it really take for a father to kill his child? And that's the subject of the great play Iphigenia and Aulis, which is about, um, which is about political, realpolitik. It's about, it's about persuasion. And it's about, and it absolutely focuses on this kind of terrible question. How could a father kill his child? And it's about her. So, you know, methodologically, <laughs> these paths are very well trodden. So, uh, I, I feel like I was being completely in the spirit of Greek literature, um, by, and, and, and very often, you know, if, if if Euripides had already done it, I didn't really need to do anything new apart from follow follow his path and render it in my in my own words. I mean, you know, I wasn't diverging massively for a lot of the time. Uh, there are one or two places where I do have an argument with ancient Greek sources, and I footnote that very heavily <laughs> so that people know. I wanted it to be clear that it was it was it was absolutely. Um, you know, I wanted to be very transparent about what choices I'd made. So it's, it's quite a heavily footnoted book and, and, it, and it, I hope, takes readers back into the sources if that's what they're interested to do. You mentioned um, Medea uh, earlier and, of course, Euripides. Um, and when I came to read your retelling of Medea, I was looking forward in some senses to uh, the great tragic and uh, appalling end of that story when, uh, of course, uh, according to the story, I knew. Uh, she kills her own children uh, in revenge or to um, uh, for her, you know, against her husband's uh, infidelity. Um, but I was quite surprised uh, to have a slightly different version in um, in your uh, in your retelling. So why why the choice? Spoiler alert! Samir's <laughs> <laughs> just ruined the book. <laughs> no, no. Um... Look, there were there were tons of different versions of um, Medea's story, um, and uh, you know there was at least another play by another playwright, um, someone whose works we don't have anymore, Neophron, who 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 has her killing her children. But there was a, yes another writer called Carcinus again whose works are lost, who um, it seems um, does not have Medea killing her children, um, and there's some. That there's, there's, there are anecdotes in antiquity about how um, Euripides might have been bribed to uh, put this ending in by the Corinthians. The Cor Corinth is where this killing happens. And um, there, there are versions of the myth floating around in which the Corinthians kill Medea's children. And there are, there, there's some ancient gossip 
it's probably not true, but it's a nice idea that um, Euripides was bribed by the Corinthians to have Medea rather than the Corinthians kill the children. So there, there, there were clearly multiple multiple versions uh, in antiquity. And it wasn't that I was... It's just that when I came to write it, I couldn't, I didn't see her killing her children. And, and it was a very in the moment, it was a very in the moment decision. The Medea that I had created based on Euripides and on Apollonius of Rhodes, who wrote the great epic about, um, Jason and the Argonauts. Um, the Medea that I had created, I just couldn't see it. So I didn't do it. Um, but but again, that that was there. That was that that was a possible route because it had been it had been done in antiquity. So I think you know because so little Greek literature survives, we tend to think of the story of Medea and it goes like this and this and this because that's what Euripides said. But that's just one branch of a massively tendrilling tree of stories that that were available uh, in antiquity. Because there were, you know, there were thousands of plays written and you know, many, many texts which have just been lost now. So we get a kind of little sliver of. So there's actually a kind of freedom there, isn't there, to just branch off into different ways of thinking. And also, you mentioned earlier visual representations. Of course, Medea is very well uh, known representations of her becoming this sort of amazing uh, chariot flamed goddess at the end of um, that play. And uh, and you yourself in this in this in this wonderful book have got some great illustrations as well. Tell us about how that came about. Oh, I'm so lucky that Chris Afili, the great artist, I mean, absolutely one of my favourite artists, Turner Prize winning artist, but, you know, I think that in a sense is the least of his accomplishments, um, agreed to illustrate the book. I always wanted, you know, partly because of that early experience with a beautifully illustrated book, I always wanted um, a great artist, if I could persuade them to... Um, to illustrate the book uh, and I because I wanted someone else's imagination brought to bear on the material as well as my own um, I wanted I wanted if I could to invite somebody to take their own path through the material that I had laid out and um, again like you know I have a very good editor because she said to me make a list of all the people you can see illustrating the book uh, you know in order of preference and don't think about who might be persuaded to do it. Just think about who you'd like to do it. And so I did that. I wouldn't necessarily have dared write to Chris Avili, but I did write to Chris Avili. I mean, I've, I have met him. We've talked about Greek myths before. Um, he's been making work around Greek myths recently. So it was, it was, you know, in a way, it was incredibly logical. And um, um, he took it into consideration. There was a, quite a slow process where during the lockdown. Um, I read out my very unfinished manuscript to him, very sort of pre-first draft. Um, I read it to him as if it was an audio book because um, I imagine that as a painter, you know, he quite likes to listen to things in the studio and so on. And then eventually he said yes. And I, I was so amazed that I didn't really believe, I didn't really fully believe it until the book was printed, to be honest. But um, yeah, I, I'm... I'm just so happy that such a such an elegant and sophisticated and generous imagination has, you know, also added to added to these stories. Uh, he's he's just a wonderful wonderful artist. There's a sort of visual aspect, as it were, within the book, uh, because 
um, you talk about um, these stories, you know, as if they were sort of tapestries and the motif of weaving and particularly women, female characters weaving stories, creating uh, stories is almost like the framing device of the whole retelling. Yeah, that's right. Um, I didn't like the idea of just stringing together one story after another. So I did sort of spend some time thinking about how I wanted to frame the stories, how I wanted to organise them. In a sense, you know, what would discipline the choices? Because there's, there, you know, I could have done hundreds more. You know, there are so many stories. So what what would keep everything in in in, in bounds? And I, oh, my last book, um, Red Thread, which is just out in paperback. Actually, it was out in paperback the same day as Greek Myths came out. Has an aspect. Um, it talks about a particular Roman poem which has at its, its heart the description of a tapestry on which. Um, is depicted mythical stories and that was a real prompt for me I thought um, I thought about moments in Greek literature where female characters use weaving as a means of taking some kind of narrative control for example in the Iliad Helen of Troy we see her we see her weaving stories of the Trojan War while the Trojan War is going on. I mean, there's a, and it's an extraordinary moment that a character in the Iliad is making art that's a bit like the Iliad, and that and no other character has the sort of insight or synoptic view to be um, synthesising it in the moment like that. You know, she's an extraordinary character, or, you know, very obviously, I suppose, Penelope, who um, uses weaving her father-in-law's shroud as a way of delaying the point at which she should decide between the many suitors who are bothering her. So she says, I will choose a suitor. This is while she's waiting for Odysseus to come back from Troy. She says, I will um, I will choose one of you suitors when I've completed this weaving. And every night she unravels it. So it's a plot device. It's an epic delaying plot device, which is also her means of, of, of self-preservation. And, and there are a few more... Um, kind of small moments in Greek and, and Roman literature like that where the act of weaving becomes extremely important. And, you know, the, you know often the act of weaving, a complex figurative scene of mythology becomes important too. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that became my, that became my device. And, and I was, another reason was this idea of, the relationship between text and textile, which are both the same Latin word as they are in English, um, that there is this relationship between the act of weaving and the act of of, of, of writing or telling stories. Um, so there were there, there, se there seemed to me to be many sort of interesting and uh, metaphorical reasons why it was a, an appropriate device to use. Yeah, absolutely, and um, it really brings a, a kind of. Uh fantastic unity um, to the book. Um, you talked about Penelope there, and towards the end, she, she sort of finishes off the, uh, the story. And there was a moment there um, when Odysseus returns. Um, it's a bit like um, what you were saying earlier about Greek um, dramatists picking out a, a small bit in uh, uh, the Odyssey and um, making it something much bigger. There's a bit at the end of... Um, when uh, Odysseus slays all the suitors, which is often just a sort of, in a way, a coda to, well, you know, they get back together at the end, the 20 years of, of wandering are over, 
and you know he sort of rightfully slays all these terrible men. Um, but it's always one of those slightly uncomfortable moments. You think, well, did he really have to just kill them all in cold blood? And um, you bring out the sort of you know what it might seem to Penelope's confused and divided feelings that her whole house has been turned into a, a, a bloodbath, um, essentially. And, um, it, it, you know, whether she quite, who has she welcomed back into her house, as it were, you know, and that kind of question is the one that's latent in the, in the original text, but it's, it's amazing the way you bring that up. Thank you. So I, I, I really, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I love that you like that. Thank you so much. That's, that, that means a lot. The, um, it was a lot of fun to do actually the Penelope section because I, for, for a lot of that section, I turned, I just turned the end of the Odyssey inside out like a coat. So everything, I just saw everything from Penelope's point of view. Um, I mean, she's in, she's in a lot of the scenes and then she disappears from the scene and, you know, she is upstairs in the Odyssey. We are downstairs with, the, with, um, Odysseus, Telemachus and the suitors. Uh, as the suitors are being killed, and Penelope is upstairs. So, what would that have sounded like from up? What What would you be thinking from upstairs? And so, that was a kind of lovely exercise in a way. It was a sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern sort of, you know, what 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 was happening off stage while while the camera, while while Homer's camera was pointed over here. What was what was Penelope doing? Um, and then the scenes that she's in. What was she, you know, what was she thinking? Um, and I think that's probably the point of the book that does feel, I think, a bit more novelistic than uh, other parts of the book. And I hope, I hope there's a sort of progression, a sort of through line from from the very early parts of the book, which is quite sort of, you know, it draws on Hesiod for creation myths, and it's quite sort of, you know, nobody's speaking. These are great sort of you know, kind of the tectonic plates of the universe, that's a terrible mixed metaphor, but the universe is being created and these enormous sort of forces of air and sky and sea are being sort of moved around. And then by the end, by the end, I think we're in, I hope we're in Penelope's head. And, and so there is a sort of, yeah, a kind of, I hope a sort of progression there. From, from the very sort of fundamental and old and ancient to something that feels starts to feel a little bit more modern and and I do give Penelope quite a, a little small modern twist at the end which I was quite pleased with <laughs> which was based on the fact that she herself I mean I won't ruin it but I, I noticed and I did actually write to Emily Wilson the, the translator of the Odyssey who who was my tutorial partner at university when we were undergraduates I wrote to Emily and said am I right that Penelope never actually sees the goddess Athena uh, because Athena is quite you know busy in in the in the Odyssey appearing to Odysseus and to Telemachus and to other people um but never to Penelope so I began to imagine that Penelope hadn't really, maybe, maybe, maybe Penelope doesn't have much reason to believe in the existence of of Athena. Anyway, I'll, I'll let the readers, see, readers of the book, see what they think of that. But that was a little twist of mine at the end. But that's the question that um, is has been posed, isn't it, in classical studies? You know, did the Greeks believe in their gods? 
Oh mm. yeah, absolutely. That's that's a that's a that's a fundamental <laughs> a fundamental question. Um and the title of uh um a very famous book <laughs> Did the the Greeks believe in their gods? Um and yeah, it's a very it's a very good question. Um clearly not all of them did. <laughs> um in the sense that from the earliest times um philosophers as we call them, pre Socratic philosophers were um um, pointing out that uh, you know it's unlikely that Zeus uh, Zeus was sort of active with his thunderbolts every time there was a storm. So th- there's a there's a you know myths were always being held up and questioned. Um, it, it, they operate in really quite a different way from texts that we might associate with um, religions that are around us now, such as you know Islam or Christianity. Uh, this is a, a a different level of um, uh, understanding of the relationship between um, g- the gods and humans and the sort of intervening texts, so to speak. Um, you know, it's inevitable whenever I get anyone who's talking about classics, I have to ask them the inevitable classics question. Um, uh, I'll try to reframe it in a slightly different way. So we know that, you know, the debate is that um, classics are, uh, very often not taught in state schools at the moment, and um, there's a sort of odd class dynamic in terms of um, which is sort of Victorian legacy, I, I suppose. But what I find interesting is that we still know these stories. Like, even if we haven't been taught the original languages, even if there is this, um, you know, sense that you know, studying Latin and Greek is for posh people or whatever the perception is, um, uh, we know, we know Odysseus, we know Troy, we know uh, you know, Achilles, you know, it, it's so embedded within our sort of cultural framework. Uh, and, you know, books like this and other retellings, and, and as you were mentioning earlier, um, quite a few novelists have been using um, uh, Greek stories as sort of framing devices for their own for their own novels. So, uh, in a way, you could say that uh, classics has never really gone away, and it's sort of in better health than it has been for a long time. Yeah, you you could do. I mean, it's it's a sort of funny moment for classics now because if you just say the word Latin, you're about to step into a culture war. You know, it on the right. You know, there was a little. I I couldn't bear to write about it for the Guardian, which is my uh, day job employer. I almost I, I didn't write about it when there was an announcement this summer that some money was being put into Latin by the now ex very unlamented. Uh, Education Secretary Gavin Wilkinson, um, because it's it's explo- it's sort of explosive in a, in a sort of completely mad way. You know, on the left, this is seen as a kind of cataclysmic, you know, awful. Why would these awful Tories um, um, kind of want to bring Latin to the Red Wall? You know, they may as well be lining up the children and shooting them. I mean, yeah, and I, of course, I'm 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 exaggerating for rhetorical effect and. On the right, you know, yes, we're standing up for Western civilization at last, and you know, um, it's just a subject. It's just a language that might be fun to do, or less fun to do, or might be interesting or might not be interesting. Um, and I do find that quite um, politically exhausting. Um, I, I find it particularly annoying, actually, when politicians on the left use Latin as a sort of stand in for elite privilege and 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 Tory nonsense 
because I think that's most unfair. Um, but there are big, there are really big questions about um, how classics um, thinks about uh, its own role in uh, Western oppression of other peoples, because you know, as a discipline, it has been very much around and about during some pretty unpleasant uh, events in the world. You know, these, this is all big stuff, and it's being fought over quite, you know, quite quite intensely, particularly in the United States. Um, but there again, I just think of, I just think of what an enriching subject it is to study. Um, and I think of the fact that, you know, I'm going to go and talk to some comprehensive, you know, some, some, uh, state educated London school pupils soon and, uh, who are doing classical civilization A level, which is a great subject and, um, you know, not quite as fraught with all these sort of slightly mad political overtones. But, um, yeah. Even you know, even even this corner of the world, or perhaps especially this corner of the world, is not immune from 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 the so-called culture war. But at the same time, you know, at the same time, these wonderful novels, um, Pat Barker and Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, you know, bringing joy to millions. So it's a, it's a kind of it's a it's a very strange moment for classics in a way, but it's certainly not dying, <laughs> not in any obvious way. I mean, the study of Latin and Greek themselves is diminishing from schools, but there are some pretty active rearguard actions uh, at the same time. So it's it's not. I don't think it, it's it's not going anywhere in the short term. That's for sure. Um, and indeed, this this Eurobook is a, an excellent way in for um, those of us who have maybe forgotten a lot of these stories or um, want to be reminded of them or just read them um, in a new way. So thank you, Charlotte. Thanks so much for having me, Samir. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. Our producer is Sarah Collins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye and see you next week.